0: Joe, turn the TV set off.
1: Turn it off. What is it, John?
0: It's from the highway commissioner.
2: Highway commissioner. This audio is from 1957. It's from a promotional video for a federal law that passed one year prior.
0: We have found it necessary in locating the new interstate and national defense highway in the Hilldale area To acquire your property for right-of-way and would like to arrange at your convenience a meeting with our appraisers and negotiators to establish a fair value and arrange the terms of the purchase.
2: You mean the freeway is going to come through our place?
0: That's what the letter says.
2: The scene shows a husband and wife, two kids, and a grandmother. They've opened a letter explaining how they're going to lose their home as a result of the new highway system being built.
0: President Eisenhower's militant call for a grand plan to provide a modern, controlled access highway system for safe, efficient transcontinental travel led to the passage of the Federal Aid Highway Act of 1956.
2: The grandma in the video is furious. They have no right to do this. This is the Harper place. She ends up taking her chair out front to sit underneath a big tree she planted to guard it from highway construction.
3: Joe,
0: run out and tell Grandma to come back in the house. The bulldozers won't be here for two or three months yet.
2: Yes, Dad. The father, for his part, takes a seat on the couch, looks flustered for a second, and then lets out a sigh and says he's been thinking a lot about what he would do if this happened. He said it came down to the greater good.
0: We all want the roads, but we want them on somebody else's place, not ours. We all want the benefits and the progress and the safety and the convenience, but we want them without having to disturb our own setup. Well, if we want all these things, the highway has to go someplace. Now, the routes are selected by experts who have nothing against us. They don't even know us. They just design the road to go where it'll do the most good for everybody and for the overall plan. Well, it happens that this road goes through our place. And I think we'd be pretty small-minded if we tried to fight it. I'm sure we'll be given a good price for our place, and we can build a new house. And as far as I'm concerned, I just don't think that any family or business or individual has any right to hold up anything that'll be good for his whole community, and for his country, too.
2: The government video paints the interstate highways as both a necessity and a luxury. This was during the Cold War, when highways were viewed as a crucial piece of infrastructure. If city populations needed to evacuate, people would need the roadways to do so. But the government was also selling them as idyllic amenities. The video shows attractive young couples road tripping cross country in cool convertible cars. And while it shines a light on some of the controversies surrounding the law, it concludes with a happy ending. It shows the ending the government wanted to see, the one where Americans didn't make a big fuss about losing their homes. But that is not an entirely accurate depiction of what happened, certainly not for Phoenix. Welcome to Valley 101, a podcast from the Arizona Republic and azcentral.com, where we answer the questions you ask about Metro Phoenix. I'm producer Taylor Seeley. In today's special investigative episode, I'm exploring interstate highways and the effect they had, if any, on segregation in Phoenix. The 1956 Interstate Highway Act was a massive undertaking for the country.
0: The program involves the construction of 41,000 miles of expressway connecting every segment of the United States.
2: These highways would be different from other federally funded U.S. highways. They'd be larger, more grand. But immediately, people were concerned the impact they would have on their neighborhoods, businesses, and towns as a whole.
1: Mr. Gray, I am Emma Glock, the chairman of Hildale's Beautification and Historical Committee. I've been studying these maps, and each proposed route will destroy some natural beauty or some historical treasure of this community. After all, don't these things have some cultural and social value? Man does not live by bread alone, Mr. Gray.
2: One solution, then, was to place the highways in parts of town the majority found less desirable.
0: Whenever possible, in our bigger cities, rights of way are located in blighted or slum areas, which helps to clean them up.
2: In cities across the country, interstate highways were specifically placed through neighborhoods that government officials considered unsightly. These neighborhoods were decimated by highway construction, and it was often part of programs called slum clearance and urban renewal or beautification. These slum clearance and blighted neighborhoods, however, were typically home to low-income people who were mostly people of color. The Black novelist James Baldwin in an interview in 1963 recalled the urban renewal programs as a means to displace Black residents and decimate their communities.
4: Urban renewal which means moving the Negroes out. Getting, it means Negro removal. That is what it means. And the federal government is, 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 is an accomplice to this fact.
2: The destruction of black neighborhoods resulted in displacing its residents farther away from white people than before, thereby further segregating cities. One example is the Dan Ryan Expressway in Chicago. Richard Rothstein, a fellow at the Economic Policy Institute, said the placement of that highway was modified to explicitly create a, quote, firewall between white and black parts of town. That segregation still lingers today. But did that happen in Phoenix? Is that story our story?
5: So in my, so the way I would portray it is that what the freeway does is essentially underscores existing segregation.
2: That's Mark Thibault, an urban historian at Arizona State University
5: So segregation was already deeply ingrained in cities through including Phoenix through housing through things like housing covenants uh, through discriminatory practices that were part of the real estate industry. in Phoenix there was a there was a north-south divide.
2: this north-south divide was demarcated by Van Buren Street. The story behind that boundary dates back to the 1800s when the town was still largely rural and farmers settled along the Salt River. But eventually, in 1891, the river flooded and it kept flooding in the years that followed. So those who could afford to move did. And they were mostly white. In subsequent decades, white real estate agents in Phoenix wouldn't show black or Latino families homes in white neighborhoods. White homeowners started implementing restrictive covenants in their home deeds. That meant a person of color could never purchase the home. Arizona also had a segregated school system and banned interracial marriage. And finally, there was redlining.
6: Uh, basically, what redlining amounts to is uh, gauging the investment uh, value of, of land, because the FHA... The federal government is insuring these loans.
2: That's Phil Vandermeer, a professor emeritus at ASU and a local historian.
6: And so there was great concern early on that the federal government not lose any money off of this. And so they'd have to guarantee that their loans were, were um, likely to be repaid. And so that's why they went into this process of categorizing neighborhoods. Now, they wound up clearly using racial categories, which didn't necessarily relate to uh, questions about value of property and, and so forth.
2: The federal government outlined neighborhoods in red that it deemed unsafe or risky for banks to lend to, and race played a key role. In a Phoenix Realty map of federal designations, the best areas were outlined in blue and complimented for their exclusivity and restrictions. In a redlined neighborhood in South Phoenix, the map says, quote, this section adjoining the railroad station and yards is a semi-industrial section with very poor houses. Negroes, Mexicans, and different classes of foreigners are rapidly occupying this area. So it would be wholly inaccurate to say interstates invented segregation in Phoenix. As I've just laid out, it was already there, alive and well in the housing market through practices like redlining and racial covenants. But the highways did still have an effect.
5: But what the interstate highway system does... Is it, it it uses those disparities and <laughs> and accentuates them? So an example of how it uses them is that property along um, in so-called blighted neighborhoods, neighborhoods that were often that were declared blighted, not just because the housing stock was aging, but because the people who lived in them were African American. So it depresses housing values in those neighborhoods. So interstates can can gobble up that land inexpensively. And those neighborhoods, which are often viable, are rendered less so when freeways take huge portions of them. And actually, that's the story of what happens here in Phoenix.
2: To understand how interstate highways reinforced segregation, you have to look at three things. First, where the highways were built. Second, the ensuing reactions from residents. And third, the response from the local government. Because the response from the government largely depended on who was reacting. So let's talk about the first point, where the highways were built. In Metro Phoenix, the 1956 Act led to Interstates 10 and 17. Interstate 17 is our north-south interstate that connects Phoenix to northern cities like Prescott and Flagstaff. The 10 is Phoenix's east-west interstate, but it also bends south to connect Phoenix to Tucson. You also have to understand two other streets, McDowell and Durango Street. They both run east to west, but McDowell is just north of downtown, and Durango is several miles south of downtown. In 1956, McDowell was a predominantly white area, and Durango was predominantly black and Latino. Now, the original plan was for the north-south I-17 to intersect with the east-west I-10 at Durango Street in South Phoenix. But that didn't happen. Instead, I-10 and I-17 connect north of Durango. They connect at McDowell, near the predominantly white neighborhoods. The reason why hits on the second and third thing you have to understand, the reaction from residents and what lawmakers did in response. The problem with I-10 and I-17 intersecting at Durango was then-Senator Carl Hayden, a Democrat, thought it wouldn't be close enough to benefit the growing communities of Litchfield and Goodyear popping up west of downtown along McDowell. He argued the U.S. Bureau of Public Roads should therefore shift it north. And he won. So at this point, the intersection of I-10 and I-17 moves north, It moves from the predominantly black and Latino neighborhood of South Phoenix to the predominantly white neighborhoods north of downtown. But that northward shift now threatened predominantly white neighborhoods like Roosevelt and Coronado. Much like the family in the beginning of this episode, families in those neighborhoods could lose their homes for the sake of freeway construction. Instead, they organized. They fought back. They spoke out against the plan and the city of Phoenix listened. It created an alternative plan, one that would save houses in those neighborhoods. It created a highway in the sky, a freeway of helicoils that would go as high as 100 feet in the air.
0: It is a circular interchange made up of a series of concentric helices to form a helicoil. I'm told it's economical to build, very efficient from a traffic handling standpoint, And as you can see, extremely satisfying from an aesthetic point of view.
2: But that compromise wasn't enough. Residents thought it was too costly. They also thought it was ugly. People bought billboards to express their displeasure over the plan. They started arguing that their homes had historic value and even started winning historic designation status that protected their homes.
5: Uh, Neighborhoods like Coronado and Willow and all those community associations are literally formed to fight for the preservation of the neighborhood in the wake of freeway development.
2: And perhaps most instrumental in the helicoil plan's demise was that the Arizona Republic, then published by Eugene Pulliam, went on an absolute tirade against the proposal. The paper's opposition eventually prompted the city to put the highway plan to a vote in 1973. The voters said no.
6: And you get kind of a confluence of people who surprisingly stopped the whole project. Um, But of course it doesn't die um, because you still have an expanding urban area, you still have people who need to get around.
2: Finally, the Deck Park tunnel path was proposed, which would go underground with the park built on top. It addressed the concerns of residents who wanted the downtown area to feel connected, not cut in half. It was put to a final vote in 1979 and it passed. The construction began in 1983 and it opened in 1990. While the Roosevelt and Coronado neighborhoods saw the Deck Park Tunnel as a better option than the prior proposals, it wasn't necessarily a win. It's possible that about 9,000 people were displaced, and the fight lasted two decades. As a result, the community deteriorated for a time.
3: Then what happened was because the route had been decided, but the construction hadn't started. Um, then you saw a long period of disinvestment, where people wouldn't invest in their homes. They didn't want to build new stuff. You didn't see investment in, you know, in the community, as you would see with the community that had an indefinite future.
2: That's David King, a professor of urban planning at Arizona State University. King said some of the consequences of disinvestment lingered for several more decades. The area started to recuperate, however, around 2010. And if you take a walk in the Roosevelt neighborhood today, you'll see more than a handful of luxury apartment complexes, trendy businesses, and gorgeous historic homes with remodeled interiors. So what do we learn from this? Well, here we had two major examples of controversies and proactive fixes from the government. Residents and politicians didn't want I-10 to connect at Durango, they wanted it along McDowell. So it happened. Homeowners in the newly designated historic communities didn't want their town to feel disconnected with the 10 bisecting it, so the state built underground and added a park on top. These predominantly white neighborhoods didn't escape suffering. But when they reacted, the government responded. The same thing cannot be said for residents south of Van Buren. And for reasons tracing back to redlining and racially restrictive covenants, this area, South Phoenix, was mostly populated by Black and Latino residents, with some low-income white people sparsely throughout.
5: I don't know of any efforts among, in the 70s at least, among non-whites or the poor that were successful and fighting freeways.
2: There are three main neighborhoods I'll focus on to illustrate the different experience minorities in Phoenix lived through. The West Region and Okima, which were predominantly Black neighborhoods, and the Barrios, which were predominantly Latino neighborhoods. Now let's think back to Interstate 17.
6: Um, the north-south part of it is, is done in the 50s.
2: The early construction of I-17 was easy to lay out. That's because it cut through rural areas where no major neighborhoods existed.
6: The question is what they're gonna do about what's called the Durango Curve area, the east-west section. Um, And and this is the real bone of contention.
2: Remember how I-10 was supposed to meet I-17 at Durango in South Phoenix? But then that didn't happen because northern Phoenicians wanted the 10 near them. And then they took years fighting over exactly how it would be built near them, resulting in the Deck Park Tunnel. Well, during all this fighting, the highway planners got sick of waiting. And they weren't sure the 10 would ever get constructed in that downtown area at all. Yet, they still needed to connect Phoenix to Tucson. That was the whole point of the 1956 Act.
6: So at that stage, they start thinking, okay, well, we better go back to constructing the uh, southern route, uh, which is now sort of the Durango Curve area.
2: While the city drew up various proposals to appease northern Phoenicians and waited on them to figure out how exactly they wanted the 10 placed, they decided to go ahead and build out the 17 in South Phoenix, This would affect the predominantly Black West Region first. To clarify, West Region wasn't the formal name of the neighborhood. It's what the city of Phoenix called the area in a report it published on historic Black properties. By the time the city finished building out I-17's Durango Curve, it would entirely border the southwest edges of the West Region neighborhood. Unlike Roosevelt and Coronado, the city didn't make the same sort of exceptions for the people in its path who would be disrupted. In fact, the city had already been buying up the land for this construction years in advance. And on May 15th, 1963, the Durango Curve opened. Before and after images taken from overhead showed dozens of homes vanished. The highway cuts neighborhoods in half. In addition to highway construction, black people were also being displaced by the city's decision to expand its downtown civic plaza. As a result, many moved farther south and southeast to the predominantly black Okima neighborhood. But a few years later, Okima would be disrupted too. Phoenix was building out a portion of Interstate 10 called the Maricopa Freeway. It would include the Broadway curve where I-10 bends south around 52nd Street. Just eight years after the Durango curve, the Maricopa Freeway construction finished in 1971. It decimated parts of Okima. People there lost their homes and the heartbreak was deep. In a City of Phoenix report documenting historic black properties, a resident named Mary Boozer remembered the changes. She said, quote, You feel kind of lost, like they are pushing you out of your home. After I moved out of there, after I found out they were tearing my house down, I couldn't go down there. I just went down 40th Street. I never came down Superior, where we lived. When I moved, I didn't go too far. None of the experts I spoke to knew of any major opposition from the West Region residents affected by the Durango Curve. I also couldn't find anything when I searched through historical black newspapers. It doesn't mean there wasn't opposition, just that we don't know about it. If there wasn't opposition, it may have been because the residents were never really given a choice. As I mentioned previously, the city had already been buying up the land— and when it came to political representation, there were no Black members on the Phoenix City Council at the time. And the Black newspapers certainly did not have the kind of political sway that the Arizona Republic under Eugene Poliam did.
6: You know, I'm not sure about how much opposition there, there, there was. This is a long time in process, and the city had been buying land for over a decade. So I think it's kind of muted uh, some of that.
2: Where there was opposition in South Phoenix, however, was the Golden Gate Barrio. The barrios were ethnic enclaves, populated largely by Mexican migrants and Chicanos, who banded together in South Phoenix during the era of segregation and intense discrimination. There were eight of them in South Phoenix, and some dated back to the 1920s. They were historic communities and considered vibrant by the residents. But by the 1970s, their existence was being threatened. The city had built out I-10's Maricopa Freeway, stretching across South Phoenix from the Durango Curve to the Broadway Curve, and Barrio residents hated it. In a 1975 article from the Arizona Republic, a local official said, quote, Southside residents resent the East-West Maricopa Freeway in their area because it is ugly and divisive. It had demolished homes and divided neighborhoods. And now, the city was also going to build out the Papago Freeway and expand Phoenix Sky Harbor International Airport. The Papago and the airport threatened a historic barrio called Golden Gate. I spoke to one woman named Stella Pope Duarte. She lived in a barrio adjacent to the Durango Curve on 7th Avenue. But she knew people from Golden Gate. And I know this one family that they had to,
1: the bulldozer was standing right there and there was still, the man was still inside the house. you was easy to go. And they said, you will go. You know, so they had to pull him out by force and get their house destroyed.
2: The notion of demolishing barrio homes was deeply personal to residents. Its history as a community forged from segregation and discrimination built a sense of loyalty and camaraderie among neighbors. Their shared suffering made them closer.
1: Us, ourselves, like I said, we had uh, our own um, get-togethers, our own world, our own lives. we were comfortable among ourselves. And people would um, take care of their lawns. You know, some of the folks there, they would grow plants and flowers and things, things like that and keep them as, you know, neat as they could. And then, of course, there was the people that had uh, junk cars in their front yards, backyards. And those days, nobody questioned any any of that. And then there was a lot of walking. People would walk. We were a walking kind of people.
2: Stella and another resident who formerly lived in Golden Gate told me these were places where people knew their neighbors. They borrowed food from each other, walked in without knocking, and everyone raised everyone's kids.
1: We used to sit out in the front porches, um, the kids playing, we used to play outside in that dusty road till 10 o'clock, 10.30 at night, running races, and the, the, the parents and everybody could see them chatting, you know sitting on the logs, and you know, I could see some of them smoking their little embers, you know, glowing in the dark. And, and I knew I was okay. My folks were there. My cousins were there. My grandparents
2: were there. You see what I'm saying? I was okay. This was important for Stella, who said she didn't feel that way in other parts of town. She remembered one time crossing Van Buren to sell potholders to some of the white families.
1: I had little projects of selling potholders, and we'd cross Van Buren Street to go into the white neighborhoods. And, uh, you know, they saw these poor little Mexican kids selling potholders <laughs> in the middle of summer, and they, you know, they buy them and stuff. That was the glimpse I had, but I knew I didn't belong there.
2: As a member of her elementary school's gifted program, she also took field trips to predominantly white areas of town.
1: When we would take trips to the other parts of the city, I would see the expression on people's faces. I mean, it was like, oh my God, (laughs) these little black and brown kids.
2: Here's Kristen Koptyak, a retired professor of 26 years from ASU. She researched transnational migration and global urbanism.
7: Um, It really gave people a kind of grounding and... and An ethno center that they could use as a source of strength and appreciation of uh, a confidence in themselves that really was intolerable to a white supremacist city.
2: But that safe little bubble would cease to exist if the highway and airport were built out. So prominent organizations like Chicanos, Por la Casa, Which was founded by residents of the barrios to fight oppression and mistreatment, and members of the Sacred Heart Church, a community mainstay, tried to fight the demolition. In the end, their organizing was unsuccessful. The Papago Freeway enforced a barrier bordering the barrio's eastern edge. That, plus the airport, also demolished homes. All that remains of the historic Golden Gate Barrio is the church which the city now owns. You can still see it standing today, its stature reduced amid desolate surroundings. When those highways went through, they made a kind of devastation
7: that's really hard to appreciate.
2: Terry Goddard, who became the mayor of Phoenix in 1984, when most of Golden Gate had already been raised, still remembers it today.
4: You just have to say it was a a social tragedy. Um, You know, the city relocated uh, a long-term, very, very stable, largely Hispanic neighborhood that was right off the end of the runway because they were concerned about eventually having lawsuits and and other other activities that would make expansion of Sky Harbor more difficult.
2: And that removal left residents with few options. And the people who got displaced from there by eminent domain. The city used
7: eminent domain to take their homes. And they raised them, so there's no question about going back there again.
2: Here's Phil Vandermeer to explain eminent domain.
6: Cities have um, the right to acquire property compensated um, if the purpose is uh, a public purpose. So, roads, power lines, um, airports, etc., are all public purposes.
2: The problem, historians today say, is that the Barrio residents were not fairly compensated.
7: Woeful amounts. Amounts of money that were based on the
2: quality of the housing, which was zero. They got nothing for their lands. To clarify, the residents were compensated. But there's widespread consensus that payouts were very low.
7: And they don't take into consideration the value of community when they decide on the price for a house. It's just based on the structure. And it's always really low.
2: On top of that, almost all of the Barrio residents owned their homes outright, which meant they didn't have mortgages. Here's Terry Goddard again.
4: But unfortunately, people who owned their homes outright, when they got their compensation, it wasn't enough to pay for a new home in Maryvale. So they ended up with mortgages, and many of them did not were not able to pay the mortgages and ended up losing their homes. So it was just a triple whammy in terms of the impact on the on the neighborhood. A, it dislocated it. So it wasn't really put back together. B, the people did not handle or were not able to handle the finances in most cases, very well, and so they got dislocated again. And so by the time I was mayor, that was the highest crime rate area in the city.
2: On top of the financial duress, the destruction was emotionally devastating as well. Stella Pope Duarte's old home near the Durango Curve still stands today. But she said the culture that used to exist is gone. She misses being able to just walk into a neighbor's home.
1: And 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 so we had this kind of uh, companionship that we could rely on.
2: And here, are you kidding me? I have to make appointments with my own kids. The loss of homes in the South Phoenix barrios and historically Black neighborhoods left lingering feelings of pain and neglect among minorities. Maricopa County's historical aerial photography from 1949 to 1991 shows entire neighborhoods obliterated to dust and then replaced with highways and airport parking structures. Hearing how fondly former residents remembered their old neighborhoods made me think back to that government commercial and the white woman from the Beautification Committee.
1: I've been studying these maps and each proposed route will destroy some natural beauty or some historical treasure of this community. After all, don't these things have some cultural and social value? Man does not live by bread alone, Mr. Gray.
2: Several sources I spoke to compared some of the minority neighborhoods that were demolished to the historic Roosevelt, Willow, and Encanto neighborhoods of today. Kristen Koptiuk, said much of what is used as a selling point for neighborhoods today is what existed in the Barrios. They're they're desperate to sell community
7: and people want to live there because they can get community with all like-minded people who have the same exact color lawns and houses and all of the requirements of the HOAs. Those kinds of communities actually exist and existed in Phoenix, but they were disparaged and disrupted.
2: The barrios and barrio residents weren't held in high regard by white Phoenicians. South Phoenix had a stigma as being dingy and unsafe. Stella recalled a time when she turned on the TV to a local newscast. Reporters were talking about her neighborhood. Images on the screen showed her neighbors' homes. I saw that we were the worst slum area you seen. And they showed
1: the little houses all around my cousin's house and some other homes.
2: The reporters were talking about her neighborhood as one of the most run-down in the city. When Stella's mom came in, she didn't realize what was happening. At first, she was just excited to see her neighborhood on TV. And she said,
1: look, you know, there's a house of so-and-so and whatever. And, and I said... Said, and, but she didn't understand the word slum because they said this is the worst slum area and something has to be done about places like, that. you know, they were, it was a, a newscast.
2: Her mother, Rosanna Pope, was an Irish-Latina woman who mostly only spoke Spanish. So, so anyway, here's
1: my mother asking me, what's a slum? So anyway, uh, I said, well, Ma, that's where poor people live. And she said, poor people? You know, well, let's go help them. <laughs> I'll never forget that. And I said, Ma, it's us. <laughs> she said,
2: what? We're the poor? I said, Ma, can't you see what they are saying? We're the poor. This was the perception of South Phoenix. Not by those who lived there, but by those who surrounded it. The government-funded highway commercial acknowledged the value in cultural treasures.
1: Man does not live by bread alone, Mr. Gray.
2: But in the case of the barrios, highways took priority. You may be wondering, why? Why didn't the opposition of South Phoenix residents matter? Roosevelt and Coronado received accommodations. Did city planners intend to reinforce segregation? Was that part of the plan? Certainly, we have some evidence that intentions to segregate may have existed nationally. In fact, some of the government officials who worked on the project acknowledged that intent. Alfred Johnson once served as the executive director of the American Association of State Highway Officials. He knew the lawmakers who wrote the 1956 Act. In an interview in 1972, he said some city officials in the mid-50s thought the highways would give them an opportunity to get rid of certain neighborhoods, but he used racist slurs to describe those neighborhoods. And we've chosen not to include such slurs in this episode. In Phoenix, slum clearance commissioners applied for federal funding to address, quote, "...badly blighted residential districts on the southwest and southeast sides in 1956." However, I did not find materials explicitly expressing an intent to segregate by the city of Phoenix. Stigma almost certainly played a role in Golden Gate's downfall. But it was also a matter of placing different values on different areas. The barrios weren't valued the way the Roosevelt and Coronado neighborhoods were. Those neighborhoods were called historic. South Phoenix, by and large, was called a transit corridor, Its value was being industrial.
6: I mean, this is relatively close to the railroad, um, you know, so, and it's a warehouse district.
2: There was another reason, too.
6: There's a second problem, and that's money.
2: The fact that land was cheaper in South Phoenix than other parts of town made it easier for the city to build out the Durango Curve and the Maricopa Freeway.
6: So they're really thinking um, about the least expensive way. Um, to, to build these roads.
2: Remember, this area had a long history of being redlined, and thus its value was underassessed. Plus, city officials thought if the state had interstates, it might increase tourism, which would help the town prosper.
6: Phoenix is, or uh, Arizona is not a wealthy state at all um, in the 40s, 50s, and even into the 60s.
2: And finally, there was a big incentive to build highways.
3: Uh one of the innovations was that the federal government would pay up to 90% of the construction of a road.
2: With the feds fronting the bill, Phoenix wanted to take advantage.
3: And ultimately that became very, very attractive to transport planners who were designing these systems and city leaders who are very interested in um, in any type of development, like an in investment in their cities.
6: So did anybody think about additional barriers to migration? Maybe, but that's not a primary factor, um, I think. They're, they're relying on um, uh, restrictions and segregation on uh, realtors not selling land um, and, and that sort of thing.
2: I can't definitively say what all the intentions were of lawmakers locally and nationally. We know the primary goal of the 1956 act was to connect big cities. But regardless of intentions, there were consequences. At the end of the highway commercial, the family that was displaced finds a beautiful new home.
0: The people who had been inconvenienced for a short time were all in fine shape. Business was good. Property values were up. Even grandma had to admit there's about as much satisfaction in planting a new tree as there is in admiring an old one, maybe a little more. And above all,
2: but for both white and minority people in Phoenix, their experiences looked nothing like this. When highways came through, their property values did not go up. Businesses did not thrive, and they were not properly compensated for the loss of their homes. Highway construction hurt everyone who lived near or in the paths. But in the decades after, one reality became clear. The pre existing segregation of the valley, coupled with the ongoing stigma of South Phoenix, now made worse by the new interstates, led to consequences more difficult on minorities and reinforced segregation in the valley. So what were those consequences? They were disinvestment, displacement, and suburban sprawl. And all of those things increased and perpetuated racial wealth, health, and educational gaps making upward mobility more difficult. Remember the story of the Deck Park Tunnel, the battle that lasted 20 years? And during that time, no one wanted to open a nearby business or fix up their home for fear it could be demolished or lose value once the highway came in.
3: So what happens is those who can afford to move,
6: move.
2: At that same time, while the highways are leading to the effectual close of some neighborhoods, they're also facilitating the growth of others.
0: At the last count, we offered a total of 10 model homes and over 60 exciting home designs
2: places like Maryvale in West Phoenix.
0: There's an abundance of literature about our homes, and you'd be surprised at how many national magazines have written stories about them.
2: And since housing segregation wasn't outlawed until 1968 with the Fair Housing Act, only white Phoenicians could move there in the beginning.
5: So what happens is these suburbs develop and essentially wealth moves out. It's predominantly white wealth. The Shannon is the kind of home that captures everybody's attention immediately.
2: That meant not only was Phoenix becoming further segregated by literally moving white people farther away, but those white people, whose wealth made up a significant portion of the tax base that sustained the city and who had the social capital to ensure lawmakers paid attention to them, they took that with them too. The price of sprawl
7: meant the destruction of the inner city neighborhoods some of which have managed to bring themselves back into into existence and some that haven't and are still struggling in
2: 1984 the arizona republic reported that while phoenix had always been a historically segregated city according to the census and other data that segregation was increasing. For the mostly white people who made it to the suburbs, their wealth was building. But for the people remaining in South Phoenix, mostly minorities, a litany of side effects accumulated and cross-reacted. First was an increase in wealth disparities and stigmatization.
5: And this has become one of the great stories of urban history because meanwhile, everybody out in the burbs can get a loan and they can afford cheap capital, and they can afford inexpensive housing. That uh, where the value raises over time, in these inner city neighborhoods, these central city neighborhoods that are being redlined, that that capital and thus the uh, ability of the housing to rise in value or even to be rehabilitated is diminished. Right, so it creates an incredible wealth gap.
2: To better understand that wealth gap, you have to understand the nature of how highways affect home values. Here's David King.
3: And because the interstates are are what we call a disamenity, people will pay more to live farther away from them. And so for a, a household, households like to be close enough for easy access to an interstate, but not close enough that they're bothered by it on a daily basis. They don't want to hear it. But within a few minutes, they want to be able to drive to an interchange where they can get on it.
2: So once it was decided that highways would be placed in South Phoenix, minority homeowners who tried to sell didn't make money because their homes had lost what little value they may have previously had. And for those who lost their homes to eminent domain, the compensation from the city was so low, most couldn't afford to move to the new communities right away some residents went homeless. Some crowded into the homes of their friends and family, speeding up the process of neighborhood wear and tear. And because of the general disinvestment, businesses weren't coming, which meant employment wasn't easy to come by. Those who did have a little money sometimes moved to other affordable areas of Phoenix.
1: So they moved, most of the majority of those moved to the west side. By west, I mean west of the freeway what we now know as the uh, I-17. So they were west of that because that was the only place where they could afford anything.
2: Around 39th Avenue and McDowell Road, there's even a Golden Gate Community Center created by former Golden Gate Barrio residents.
1: And so they, they began a whole culture on the west side, basically. And of course, Then that caused a white flight because people, once they saw that they were coming in, you know, wherever the uh, Anglos saw that there was either black or brown people coming, they would flee. (laughs) Flee. It's like, you can have these houses. We're getting the hell out of here. We don't want to live around you guys because you're dirty, because you're not educated, because you don't act right, because, you, you know, whatever. You're from Mexico or whatever their thoughts were.
2: Look no further than Maryvale for an example of this migration pattern. Kristen Koptiak said South Phoenix Latinos started moving to Maryvale three decades after white citizens moved there.
7: Into the housing, which was cheap by then because it was old, came um, migrants and um, ethnic Latinos looking for affordable housing.
2: But when they came, others went. The young families that moved there in the 1950s were fearful
7: of um, urban change and the minoritization in their neighborhoods, and they moved out. You know, their homes were older by then. They moved out. Either they died or they moved to a new subdivision further out somewhere. And it was a
2: kind of mini-white flight. The first master-planned neighborhood built by John F. Long for middle-income white Phoenicians, a neighborhood powerful enough that Senator Carl Hayden would fight for the relocation of Interstate 10 to be closer by, is today a minority-majority village. According to the Arizona Department of Health Services, 76% of people living there say they are Latino. But not only did the ethnicity of the residents change, the attitude toward and reputation of the area changed.
7: And now Maryvale is the site of the biggest, strongest Latino community, and it has become the demonized part of the city. It shifted from South Phoenix over to Maryvale.
2: As Maryvale aged and Latinos moved in, a similar pattern of disinvestment that had occurred in downtown repeated. White residents stopped caring for their homes. Many Latinos, burdened by expensive new mortgages, didn't have a lot of money to keep up with home maintenance. Businesses closed and jobs left. In terms of upward mobility, no substantial change has occurred for the residents there today. Maryvale in 2019 was home to some of the lowest-income Phoenicians. 60% of the residents lived 200% below the federal poverty level. Nearly 40% of the children 12 and younger in Maryvale lived in poverty. And on top of the wealth gap, suburbanization also led to the degradation of education quality and the destabilization of neighborhoods. For example, school populations and funding changed. Bradford Luckingham, a former historian and author of Minorities in Phoenix, wrote that from 1967 to 1970, the population of white students at Phoenix Union High School dropped from 35.1% to 19.3%. Without the tax dollars from middle-class white families, schools began to struggle financially. When that happened, student dropout rates increased and crime rose, the number of street gangs grew, many of which operated in minority neighborhoods. It was a volatile time,
6: you know,
1: a volatile time later on when the the kids started. um, When you have a, a, a situation where people are oppressed, they, without even sometimes knowing, they will strike out against that oppression. And they'll do it in a, in, a, in a violent way, even against one another,
2: because of the frustration. The ensuing de facto segregation also resulted in disparate health outcomes. In 2005, a group of ASU professors published a study that found chronic environmental inequities for residents of South Phoenix. This is because interstate highways invited more industrialization and pollution to the area. The researchers wrote, quote, Interstate 17 was placed directly across Latino neighborhoods of South Phoenix, paralleling the historic rail corridor. The resultant high levels of highway traffic contribute to substantial ambient air pollution in this zone today. To give you a little comparison, the report also found this. In metropolitan Phoenix today, 3% of residentially zoned areas directly border industrial zoning, in contrast to 35% of neighborhoods in South Phoenix. To put it simply, people in South Phoenix live in a more industrialized area. This means their air is more polluted, which can lead to a number of health consequences, like asthma and difficulty sleeping.
3: So not only was the initial construction problematic, um, but the ongoing operation of these facilities has led to ongoing harm for for the communities that are nearby.
2: At this point, I've thrown a lot of information at you. So let me summarize what we've learned. The 1956 Highway Act created Interstates 10 and 17 in Phoenix.
4: President
0: Eisenhower's militant call for a grand plan to provide a modern, controlled access highway system for safe,
2: efficient transcontinental travel. Wealthier white residents had a say in the construction of I-10. They wanted it to be moved to benefit the communities like Goodyear, and those in downtown fought the city on its design.
0: It is a circuit... ...interchange made up of a series of concentric helices to form a helicoil. I'm told that...
2: The government listened and created the Deck Park Tunnel. White families were still displaced, but they had options for where they could go.
0: There's an abundance of literature about our homes, and you'd be surprised at how many national magazines have written...
2: The same could not be said about predominantly Black and Latino neighborhoods in South Phoenix. Those neighborhoods once boasted strong communities. My folks were there. My cousins were there. My grandparents were there. You see what I'm saying? I was okay. But the communities in South Phoenix were unable to plead to the government in the same way. The city council didn't recognize the historic value of their neighborhoods or their church. Ultimately, many were forced from their homes. And I I know this one family
1: that they had to, the bulldozer was standing right there and there was still, the man was still inside
2: the house. Some became homeless. Others moved in with family. Decades later, some would move to places like Maryvale. You begin to see a pattern repeat of what historians called white flight. And with that, wealth leaves, political power leaves, and the remaining community is again under-resourced and a host of problems stem from that. So that's where we're at, not just in this episode, but in the present day. This pattern and these problems, disparities in wealth, education, health, they're not relegated solely to the past. Many of the same concerns about equal opportunity and equitable treatment for residents of South Phoenix persist today. Here's my colleague, the Arizona Republic's reporter covering South Phoenix, Megan Taros. There's this sense that it's
8: coming. Gentrification is slowly creeping into South Phoenix, and there's this paradox between city leaders leaning on stereotypes and not wanting to put things in South Phoenix, but also taking advantage of sort of an investment opportunity. So I think residents are navigating the beginnings of a new normal.
2: Residents in South Phoenix are afraid of getting priced out of their community. That's especially true as developers have moved into the area creating luxury housing, and the potential for light rail expansion in the area is worrying residents too. And just like in the past, when South Phoenix residents felt their voice didn't matter when they spoke in opposition to the highways and the airport expansion, some today feel their concerns over how light rail will affect their cost of living is also being ignored.
8: So it's, it's this... Um difficult sort of thing to grapple with because it's like, well, we don't want to get pushed out of our
2: apartments because we can we can barely afford I mean, a lot of things. It's not that South Phoenix is against the light rail.
8: There's a need for light rail. Light rail gets a lot of people to work and they need better transportation options. But then what happens later down the line, if they can't afford rent anymore, then they don't have a place to live. And that point is sort of meaningless. So there's a lot of mixed emotions about it.
2: Like any other community, the residents there want stability. They want to make sure what's being put in their community serves their community.
8: But it's a matter of, okay, we can have these things. They're not exclusive. You know, we can have these things, but um, they have to work for us. They have to be affordable. They have to, you know, be in places where people can actually get to.
2: It's about having a voice. Throughout this episode, I focused specifically on interstate highways. But in the time that I-10 and I-17 were being built, the same fights between residents and cities were happening all over the valley. When Phoenix residents didn't want Loop 101 on the east side to be too close to their neighborhoods, they fought the city to push it farther east into tribal land. That's where it exists today. When Phoenix proposed a highway called Paradise Freeway that would extend east and west, essentially along Camelback Road, the residents there fought them repeatedly until they just gave up. And those fights still happen today, but they are made possible by residents who have the money to sue the city and by residents whom local leaders listen to. The end result equals real life consequences and differences in quality of life and opportunity for people of different neighborhoods, which also tends to mean people of different races and socioeconomic statuses. In Phoenix, interstate construction led to disinvestment and displacement. It impoverished residents and made upward mobility more difficult. That, in turn, reinforced decades-old segregation patterns, which may have otherwise deteriorated sooner. We'll never know. We can't go back and change things. The best thing we can do, the only thing we can do, is learn from the past. The audio in today's episode came from Periscope Film LLC Archive, John F. Long's promotional video The Homeowner, PBS, and Arizona Department of Transportation. If you liked today's episode, please let your friends know about Valley 101. Word of mouth reviews like that really help our podcast reach new people, and we want to share as much of the history of Phoenix, both good and bad, as possible. I'm producer Taylor Seeley, signing off for now.